Thanks for tuning in. Before we start the show, we have an announcement to make. We got gear for you. Yeah, due to popular demand, we've got some proper nice t-shirts with our famous logo on the front. We've even got two style with caps. We've got the trucker cap and the best-selling uh, lazy slouch adjustable cap. And more importantly, we've got a beer mug, a whiskey glass, and a coffee mug to go. So you can be listening to our podcast no matter what you're doing, whether you're having a cigar at night or you're on your way to work. So you can pick up whatever you like there. Mike, where can they find it? All you got to do is go to freakstrength.com slash shop, freakstrength.com. Click on the shop. Once you click on shop, pictures are going to show up of our merchandise. Click those pictures right there. There you have it. Mike and Brooker show merchandise right there. Scroll right down. Order whatever you can to support the show. Show everyone that you are avid listeners of the Mike and Brooker show. Yeah. Show, your, show yourself as an original disciple of the show. And guys, we just want to thank you once again for the love and support. It means the world to us. But in order for us to keep doing this, we need to keep receiving feedback. So no matter what it is, good, bad, or ugly, we're open to everything. We want to keep delivering the best information possible. So thanks once again for all the love, and we hope to hear from you soon. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And we are rolling. So we have the legendary coach, Dan Paff. Uh, he is a wealth of information. I, I had originally started at DeFranco's, and then I graduated from how I look at things. I graduated from DeFranco's to Buddy Morris and James Smith, and then James Smith had turned me on. He said, hey, listen, if you really want to learn, check out this guy, Dan Paff. And then I feel like I went from one degree to the next degree to an advanced degree, and then listening to Coach Paff and then connecting with him. I, I mean, I, I had watched hundreds of hours of your videos before I even had the courage to reach out to you. Um, I had downloaded a bunch of your Canadian lectures. Um, I, and it was, I, I've watched them over and over and over and over again, just, just trying, to, trying to grasp anything. And, and I mean, to me, coach, you are the epitome of, of uh, coaching personality, uh, it, the way how generous you are with coaches, athletes, with your time. I mean, I, I texted you and I said, Coach, I would be honored to have you on the podcast. You said, anytime. Like, you're, you're so willing to donate, donate any of all, your, all of your time uh, to, to anyone. Um, I, and even in my, uh, my newsletter, I even have a quote that goes on every single newsletter that you had sent me years ago. You said, life's a circle. You know, if a, coach, if a coach ever asks anything of you, just return the favor, you know? I, and you've, you've influenced me and inspired me to want to be a better coach. Every single lecture that I watch of yours, I learn something and it inspires me even more. Coach, I, I really, I, I think the world of you and I'm so honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. <clears throat> You're very kind. <laughs> so, so now... The, the way you're, how, how did you start off? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people know your career, but where, where was your first start? Was, with, was it with Coach Telez? Well, actually, I started out as a high school coach in Ohio. And this is in the early 70s, where you had to be a, a neo-generalist. So I coached football, wrestling, middle school wrestling, intramural basketball track and field, summer conditioning, <clears throat> and I was a science teacher, so I taught <clears throat> physics, chemistry, biology, 
you name it. <clears throat> so a great baptism. Uh, and I was a high school coach for six years before I segued to the University of Houston to study under Coach Telez there. So once you finished, and, and how you were with, with Coach Telez for what, like four or five years, right? Uh, just two years, and he threw me out of the nest. He said, it's time to, to go get dirty at the coal face. And where did you go from there? So I was at Wichita State for a year in Kansas, and then I moved to UTEP in El Paso for two years. And um, that's where I got a lot of my international connections and experiences, because UTEP was predominantly an international program. And at the, <clears throat> at the age of 30 and 84 Olympics, I had 10 athletes I coached in the Olympic Games. So I thought, hey, this is easy. I'm genius. <laughs> it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so so when, once you were done, you know, coaching with, with Coach Telez, where did you go from there? I mean, how, who, were your, who were your mentors? How did you start? I mean, because you speak to, to, you always say that your athletes need to have a PhD in their sport, right? They, yeah. You have a PhD of PhDs in how you speak to your athletes and how you understand what they're going through, not just physically, but psychologically. Where, how, did you, how did you come to get to this level? <clears throat> well, I, I grew up in, in Ohio on a farm. So my, my dad was a farmer. He came from a, you know, generations of farmers. They were German immigrants to Wisconsin. Uh, and so there was the farm experience where, again, you got to be a generalist and, and you buy livestock. So you have to look at architecture of livestock and mannerisms of livestock and whatnot. We were dairy farmers. My dad also ran a construction company. So again, you got to be a generalist. You got to know laborers and plumbers and electricians and architects and zoning boards and politics. And in Ohio, you had to know how to serve the mafia. So <clears throat> I grew up uh, very fortunate. My father taught me a lot about how to read people, how to deal with people, how to study architecture, if you will, not only of buildings but animals and people so I, I think i came to it pretty naturally i was always attracted to science and back then we didn't have computers or whatnot but we did have a library and my parents did buy a set of encyclopedias and i probably read those encyclopedias through about 10 times because in the 60s, <clears throat> we had two tv stations one newspaper and two radio stations so in the, in the winter, it got pretty boring pretty fast. So the encyclopedias were a great outlet. And and Dan, what, which what made you pick track and field as a path? I mean, if you started off as this neo -gen generalist with football and wrestling, how come you didn't get trapped into this world? Well, I, <clears throat> I got married young, and football in Ohio is a big industry, and it's uh, 18 hour days, seven days a week, and the wife wasn't digging that lifestyle too much, so that was one factor. <laughs> uh, I grew up in the 60s where it was very top down, very siloed, very military. Mm. And so, <clears throat> as an athlete, I, I really didn't understand being punished for mistakes I didn't make. And, and, and doing ridiculous workouts and 
you know, if I questioned something, I was called a rebel and I was ostracized and punished. So the team aspect, because of the, the environment of the 60s, which was chaos, people think it's chaos now. It, it was chaos in the 60s too. I kind of gravitated towards individual sports like wrestling and track and field where you controlled your destiny, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then I was always curious. So when I was in high school, our track coach was a basketball coach. He didn't know anything about track. And we had a small team. There was about 11 guys. So every everybody did multiple events. So I was a pole vaulter, first of all. But I long jumped, I high jumped, I threw the shot, I ran the hurdles, I ran on the relays. So it became apparent real early that the coach didn't know much about anything in track and field. He was a great basketball coach, but he was clueless in track. For example, we ran 10 times 400 every day of the week to get the <laughs> Well, if you try to pole vault after 10 400s, it's not a, a great experience. So again, I went to the library and at the time there were some journals called Scholastic Coach and Athletic Coach. And in the spring they'd have kinograms, pictograms of various events. And so I'd start studying those pictures. And uh, I found a journal called Track Technique which listed how people trained at different times of the year. So I started collecting training programs and biomechanical kinograms when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. Wow. So that shoved me into the science of sport and curiosity. So I've been collecting training programs since probably 1967. And so as I've traveled the world and worked in different sports and whatnot, it's still an ongoing kind of like Linux computer language. I just keep collecting programmings, whether it's annual plans or cycle plans or weekly plans or daily plans. And this is before computers and spreadsheets, so I'd tape them up on the wall, and this is before markers. So with colored pencils, I'd circle things that were common denominators, like, okay, every jump group in the world does acceleration workouts. Every jump group in the world does sprint workouts. Every jump group in the world does jump training. And so, you know, rather than reinvent the wheel, I was just looking for commonalities, common denominators. And that's the approach I've always had, whether it's football or soccer or lacrosse or Irish hurling. It's like, what do the best do consistently? What are the first principles, the big rocks? And it's the same thing on biomechanics. What are the landmark positions and the commonalities in movement expression? You're safe teaching those things if there's diverse populations doing commonalities if you will so sorry sorry for the long explanation no no that was fantastic coach the more you talk the better we yeah. we i to be honest with you this is this is a selfish interview i'm i'm here i'm here to learn as yeah, much as i can so. as as always with every conversation with you um, well it may not be factual and it's a lot of bias but um, it, it is my journey of 50 years and, That's and, the way we like it. Yeah. And, and, and understanding that it's bias is so super important. I, I, I think even, even people that listen to this need to understand that you understand that you don't know anything for certain. It's, it's just like a guess and check. Like if something could come out tomorrow and we could just be like, well, shit, we're not doing that anymore. 
Well, co coaching is a science, scientific method personified, and science changes, it evolves. So we used to use leeches and bloodletting, but we've segued from that a little bit. And, you know, studies are disproven every week or tweaked or refined, like, you know, let's go flexibility. I'll, I'll show you a hundred that say it's bad. I'll show you a hundred that say it's appropriate in certain situations. So a lot of science is really context. Uh, when I review scientific articles or whatnot, it's always like, who's the population? What's the length of the study? What variables did they delineate? Which variables did they include? How are they skewing the graphs or the scattergram? There's a lot of tricks in science. Yeah. And so really the, the chase for this generation of coaches is how to discriminate information. Yeah, one of, yeah. One, of, one of my old professors always told me, figures don't lie, but liars figure. Yeah. In, reg in regards to any kind of research. He said, hey, listen, you know, we, we can go through, and, and he even went, we, I, I believe in one of our statistics uh, classes in graduate school, he went over the original data that we utilized for global warming, like with, with everything. And this is one of the reasons why people think global warming was a hoax because they skewed the data in favor of what the person was saying. Yeah. So, so they'll go off the original data simply because I think he said all they did was like square root the, the, the standard deviation. And all of a sudden it fit their sample size. Like it was, it was. <clears throat> well, and I, th I think we've gone down rabbit holes with tech and spreadsheets and data analysis and all of this. Like I'm, I'm pretty old school, you know, I, uh, I was a teacher. So stats for educators in the 60s and 70s were mean, median, mode, T-score and Z-score. Mm -hmm. I, I still use those. They're, they're not bad indices. Like we're so myopic on <clears throat> data and granularity that sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah, and also it seems to be that people are scared to try things based on their own intuition. Everything needs to be backed up by this many studies and, you know, there's not much originality anymore. And that's actually one of the things that I would love to ask you, Dan. I mean, over your years of 50 years of pattern recognition, what are some of the things that you see which seem to be true, but that they might not be found in a, in a, in a scientific journal? Well, I've always, being a science guy, I was intrigued by geometry. There's a branch of geometry I was really intrigued by called fractal geometry, where you mm -hmm. see patterns within patterns within patterns. So as I collected training programs and done biomechanical studies and physiology analysis and all that, I'm always looking for trends and patterns. Because... You know, I personally don't think there's, you know, a lot of absolutes, you know, it's a spectral and a layered phenomenon. So where we're at on the spectrum or what layers of analysis are hugely important in the grand analysis of things. So, you know, I'll give you one example is studying the biomechanics of gait and sprinting. World-class sprinters, when they're upright, at mid-stance, the heel sinks for talus calcaneus glide for movement of the joints around the support system. So the heel actually sinks and in most cases touches the ground. It's milliseconds. And if you don't have high speed film, you, you don't see it. But yet so many coaches teach 
run on your toes or run tall, run on the ball of the foot. Well, that might be an okay cue or paradigm for a beginner or a person with a certain movement virus. But if you take it to the extreme, then that athlete may think, I've got to land on the ball of the foot and stay here. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, they're going to have to compromise movement expression and force application because it violates the kinesiological function of the foot. So that would be an example of biomechanical trend rec recognition or analysis. And, you know, cues are like t-shirts, you know, they, you try it on, see how it fits. You know, I'm fat, so I wear dark and loose, but after a while they start to smell and you got to change them. And this is the thing with, you know, all these battles, external cue, internal cue, or whatever. It's what is the context, the situation, stage of development, the expertise of the instructor, so on and so forth. But feedback loops have to be variable, have to change with time. A cue that works pre-season may be terrible in-season. A cue that works with developmental athletes may be totally useless with veteran athletes and vice versa. So this trend pattern recognition, I think the big takeaway for me over the years is situation, we get into pol polemics and, and tribalism. It's most things exist in a spectrum. So where are we at on that spectrum? And there's layers of factor in this. If you're not juggling the balls that you're dealing with complex systems and layers and all, spectrums, I think you err to biasing myopics and linear reductionism. Mm -hmm. And when you're sort of, when you're looking at such, such things like what you mentioned before through the magazines where you're sort of looking at movement breakdowns, of course there seems to be like mathematically like one way that seems to be the most efficient. When you're coaching people, how, how are you trying to always push them to one way or are you taking no. into account their natural movement abilities and not trying to do, you know what I mean? Not trying to destroy yeah. their natural mechanics and posture. Well, this gets us into the polemic battle of the ecological dynamics guys. Like just let them figure it out, play, throw the ball out. They'll figure it out. I've got an eight year old granddaughter that I've taught how to ride a bike, ride a scooter and a skateboard. And if I hadn't coached her, she'd still be out there failing. Mm -hmm. So I think there are models, if we study good movers in all sports, there's common positions, landmark positions that they obtain in those movements, whether it's changing direction, starting, accelerating, running upright. Now there's sport bias. So running back is, is more flexed, lower center of gravity and all that. But if you don't know the theoretical model, then how do you know how to adjust for sports specimen. So we talk about there's a model and then there's bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And the great performers, the great movers, that bandwidth is pretty narrow. But with beginners and novices, that bandwidth may be a little wider as they chunk information and refine technique and economically explore their gifts. And that bandwidth narrows through time. And the same thing with movement expression. Like you don't see anybody in 100 meters world class running with straight arms. Mm -hmm. You don't see them with their arms bent like a weekend jogger. The elbow opens and closes. It angulates to counterbalance the closure and opening of the leg during the gait cycle. Mm 
So there are common positions we call landmark positions. So like on our kinogram at Altus, we describe five key areas, you know, touchdown, mid stance, toe off, in flight, so on and so forth. Good movers hit certain positions in a certain time frame. And the movement expression to change from position to position, those bandwidths are pretty narrow for good movers. They're broader for poor movers or injured movers or novices or whatnot. We also know from return to play that initially the bandwidth's really small. We're afraid to explore variability. And then as we get healthier, that bandwidth expands, but it could expand too far. So the art of coaching is knowing your athlete's movement map. So some sports have bias, like ice hockey, field hockey. <clears throat> it's biased to a kyphotic posture with a lot of flexion. They seldom get upright. Mm -hmm. So there's a training bias, billions of reps. But the other side of that is sometimes they do get upright. And if we don't vaccinate them for those positions and moments, that we expose them to energy leaks, inefficiencies, or injury risk. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about where are we at on the spectrum. So a nose guard in the NFL, bulk of his work is probably under eight steps. But with the league today and mobile quarterbacks, they may have to chase quarterback all over the place. So now the nose guard's upright taking four or five steps more than normal. Well, are they vaccinated for that kind of work? Have they got work capacity for the execution of those dynamics in that upright posture? If we compare a nose guard to a DN, <clears throat> DN, a lot of running, longer distances, <clears throat> way more change in direction than the nose guard. Well, that's gonna bias their architecture, their movement expression, so like in sprinting, we talk about five big rocks on acceleration. Contact time lessens each step, flight time increases, attack angles lessen, you know, things of that nature. How they juggle those balls is task specific. So nose guard has to engage somebody after two or three steps. That's a lot different than a wide receiver on a free release. But the first principles still adhere. So contact times lessen, flight times increase, each stride gets longer, each stride gets quicker, tack angles lessen. So if you don't know the first principles in the theoretical model, then how do you coach <clears throat> sport-specific adaptations to the model? Be my question. So how did you come up with your theoretical model outside of I see that person, I see that person, I see that person. We're getting the common denominators. Was, was, there, was there someone to help show you the way along, along your, your journey? Well, being in science, you, you learn about studies and data collection and experimenting and graphs and patterns and so on and so forth. So I was always naturally thinking that way, at least in the background, anytime I got there. So when I was looking at movement as a young coach, 
working with our common denominator idea, I'd say, okay, let me study the 10 best age group kids at an AAU meet. Let me study the 10 best middle school kids, the 10 best high school kids in Ohio, the 10 best kids at the national AAU meet, the 10 best NCAA athletes, okay, the 10 best Olympians. Were there any common denominators across that spectrum? And there were. So that's an inter-athlete study. And then as I, through the years, and I've traveled and worked in other sports, it's still the same process. So if I look at running backs, who are the 10 best running backs, you know, in output? Well, how do they start? How do they change in direction? How do they run upright? How do they run on step five? So you start looking for these trends and patterns. There, if, if you surf through all of those variables, it, it narrows down, but there are key positions at touchdown to the ground. There's key positions at mid stance. There's key positions at toe off. There's key positions and repositioning of limbs in flight, no matter what sport, what age, what gender. And then to be sure, then I did intra-athlete study. So that's enter. Intra, I would look at an athlete and look at them when they had a great time versus a bad time or so-so time. Look at them at preseason, in-season, postseason. Look at their individual variants over time, healthy, injured, so on and so forth. So you start developing these layers of excellence, if you will, to help you create the theoretical model. So, Piggybacking on that, you are extremely knowledgeable in human anatomy uh, and, and, and biomechanics. You're, you're just, do you have a master's degree? Coach, did you yeah, hear me? Just now, you broke up. Oh, sorry. Did, did, did you have a master's degree when uh, you went to school? So my undergrad degree was... Uh, and science education. My master's at Houston was in education, but it was the first attempt at what they called sports science degree. So it was relatively new, unorganized. Basically, I built my own master's program. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate. I, I had an advisor, like I wanted to study engineering stats. He said, go do it. We'll sub it for educational stats. Um, I did an internship with Michael DeBakey, the heart surgeon at Methodist Hospital, you know, and I got that approved in, in place of exercise physiology because I go in and test out of the, the exam and I'm like, why should I spend money in all semester? Like graduate biomechanics was a joke. So, yeah. you know, I took the test the first day, got a 98, and the guy said, well, do a paper and we'll call it done. So I was pretty fortunate <laughs> to build my own degree. <laughs> so, so everything that you are, everything that you've done and you're a culmination of is literally your, your self-research. Yeah, like, like I said, my dad was in construction and um, so I worked a lot, you know, on job sites and I'd, I'd constantly screw up. I was a bit of a rebel and I was always looking for shortcuts. If, you, if you've ever roofed or poured concrete, you're looking for shortcuts. 
especially in the summer in Ohio where it's 90 degrees with 90% humidity. And so inevitably I get caught out. It would screw up. I'd have to redo it and so on and so forth. One day he grabbed me and goes, look, if it's not apparent yet, you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So you better learn how to ask for help and seek knowledge and wisdom and guidance. Because if you don't, you're not going to live very long. Because <laughs> after you've fallen off a roof two or three times carrying shingles, you start to figure out that maybe there's a better way. So I was nudged into networking before it was even a term. And I was always naturally attracted to my elders. I loved hearing stories. Uh, I'm a historian. I love history. So I've had a natural affinity to seek wisdom and guidance and stories and processes and vast networks, uh, you know, sports medicine, any branch of science, management, psychology, journalism, media. I'm just naturally curious and I naturally build networks. I'm kind of a maven. I kind of like connecting people with similar thoughts and interests and because I believe in synergy. If I, if I bring five radiologists on a Zoom call on a problem, on an MRI slide analysis, the discussions, the expansion, the growth is exponential. I just believe in group synergy. That's why I struggle with our profession sometimes that coaches have secrets and they, you know, got to keep the, the curtains pulled or whatnot. In 50 years of coaching, I haven't found too many secrets, to be honest. A lot of times, we're just reinventing the wheel. Yeah. You know, like, uh, I worked with a lot of Scandinavian athletes. So my first trip to Scandinavia in the early 80s, I saw a lot of med ball circuits and use of med ball. And so I started building circuits that made sense for my group back in the States, a university coach. And... I built all these elaborate circuits and gave them names. And I had rationale, hey, this exercise is doing this, this is doing that. Uh, we're doing these early to burn out certain things so that on these later items, they can't cheat. You know, I had all this elaborate rationalization. And I thought I'd really invented something clever. Well, then I was on a research project in Sweden going through a friend's library. And Fred Kudu was a famous Russian decathlon coach, and this Bjorn had grown up with Fred, and he had a lot of his materials. And there was my med ball circuit, tit for tat, published in 1958. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, like resistance training, Jesse Owens drug a tire in the 30s come on and what seemed to be the, the the key components that we can date back as far as as we're aware dan in the you know let's say for example for for sprinters what is the core components that no matter what we can't seem to get away from well a friend of mine pj basil in france paris is a tremendous sport historian and He's got quite a few things online that you can Google and whatnot, slide decks. And, you know, he's looked at this. What, what are the essentials, the first principles and whatnot? And he's got some pretty cool timelines 
going all the way back to the Greeks, but really loaded in the late 1800s and on. And it's kind of interesting, some of the microdosing that we're talking about and expansion of density patterns, guys were playing with this in the 1920s and 1930s with what they call match races where they ran on grass and there was a lot of bedding and so on and so forth. So there was advanced training science on sprinting at the beginning of the 20th century. And in general, people work on starting on accelerating, on upright sprinting, and some kind of speed endurance. Mm -hmm. Those are the big rocks. <laughs> Nothing too fancy, huh? Well, the art is determining where you spend your time. How many workouts mm -hmm. do we work on starts? How many workouts on accelerating? How many workouts on speed or speed endurance? Do we build hybrid workouts? So. Even in the 1800s, guys were doing hybrid workouts. They would do so many starts, then so many excels, then so many sprints, and then finish with a speed endurance run. So this idea of hybrid concurrent training isn't new. I mean, sprinters were doing this shit in the late 1800s. <laughs> so that I think that's another gap in, in modern coaching is a lot of our young practitioners don't study history of these phenomena. And, you know, why study history? Why go down rabbit holes if you don't need to? These guys have already gone down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's, um, with your with your groups that when you were working with them, how much, how much of it is sort of like a, a sort of a, a blanket program with the core fundamental concepts and how much of it is sort of individualized and are you auto regulating things based on movement efficiency? So are you watching the, the, every rep of every set of every exercise and how do you, how do you manage that with a, with a group of guys? Well, I've had some gigs where I've had a lot of money, a lot of support, and lot, you know, so on and so forth. But most of my gigs, I was the Lone Ranger. I, I was the coach, I was the therapist, I was a psychologist, I was the uh, educational director, I was the compliance director, I was the lifestyle management coach, you know, like back then you had to do it all. So you build systems and ways, and I've had large groups, like at LSU, one year I had 78 athletes. I coached the throws, the jumps, men and women, combined events, and I had 20 athletes that were post-collegiate Olympic club. So we had three runways, so when we long jumped, I had three runways going, and it was like feedback, next runway, feedback, it was like a factory. So you develop systems for management. I call it mailboxing. So if I'm doing a warm-up, I've got good movers in one group and bad movers in another group and maybe rehabbers in a third group. Or I may mailbox them by output, like good movers in this group, bad movers in this group, so-so movers in this group. So that I, I know what to look for. It helps me chunk information and it simplifies the queuing and the feedback loop because you're mailbox specific. So in football, I may have wide receivers in one group, running backs and tight ends in another group, the, the interior linemen in a group, O-linemen in a group. 
So it's how you mailbox people to simplify the management process, to create clear delineation lines. We chunk information in our brain. We build files. So how can we run through these files quicker with greater accuracy? So I've always believed in individualization. I write what I call a blueprint because we know the essentials. So if we're going to do an acceleration workout, for example, we know that it takes eight or nine runs to stimulate what we want to stimulate, whether it's learning, refinement, or metabolic. But we also know through time, unless you're on rocket fuel, about 18 runs is your ceiling. So we have a basement of nine runs, a ceiling of 18 runs. So I write in ranges. So we're gonna do three to five sets of three runs with a certain work to rest ratio. So if you're having a good day and we're trying to guard energy, maybe we stop at nine. Say you're having a bad day or you're fighting an injury, we may stop at nine. <laughs> Say you're having an awesome day and we don't have a game that week, we may go to the ceiling and, and try 18 to a bit of an overreach. So. It's prescriptive within the day based on feedback or warm up, how they're handling the session. I think we do that a lot in the weight room. We write open-ended sets and ranges and percentages, but why don't we do that with running workouts or change in direction workouts? That's my question. If, a, if those first principles work in the weight room, why wouldn't they work on other movement characteristics? So I write a template <clears throat> and I write in ranges. And a lot of times we have menu items that we can't manipulate volume and intensity very much. So how do you do an Excel at 70%? You can't, it's not an Excel. It may be a segue or a primer, but it's not, you're not training Excel. So with accelerations, we're locked with volume, our ceiling and basement and our intensity. So the only way we can undulate that menu item is density. How many times we do it in a week? Do we microdose it? So the big balls I'm juggling on individualization is volume and intensity, but a lot of times I'm locked. I can't juggle them very much. So I have to juggle density patterns. Sure. Sure. So if we look into return to play research like bars, tendon research, you know, he's starting to show us that microdosing intelligently on return to play on tenon rehab has way more merit than the classic big volume, slow, low resistance. It's too linear. He, he's showing us that we need variance in speed, forces, velocity, angles of insult, duration of these things. Well, I think it's the same thing in programming. You know, it's really easy to get into white noise, but the flip side is, so many coaches are juggling things and creating chaos. The athletes never know where they're at. So we have landmark workouts that we do periodically so that the athlete knows where they're at. So there's always this balancing of the spectrum. Too much variance, we got chaos. Too much rigidity, it's white noise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if we was to look at the other side of the spectrum, I mean, when you're working with 78 people, I mean, organized chaos for sure. 
And if you was to split, go to the other end and then you're working directly, just one-to-one. My question is, is, is there any reason that that would be, that would get us better results than compared to the 78 guys? And, you know, my reasoning being, okay, maybe you've got more energy that you can watch things better, but there's also the benefits of working in groups and group psychology and stuff like this. Right. So. Yeah, I think, I think it's the context you're working in. Personally, I do a bad job with small numbers because I get, I see too much, I talk too much, I feedback too much. I'm too on, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my sweet spot's about eight to 10 people in a group. Keeps me fluid, flexible. Now, the biggest number I've coached is 2,000 students in a, in a <laughs> arena in China <laughs> teaching a warm-up. So that's one end. And of course, I have one-on-one sessions, you know, various times here, maybe at an Olympic Games or something like that. But I know my bias and my tendencies. And if I'm in a small group, it costs me way more energy because I'm constantly vigilant that I'm going to overcoach, overteach, overfeedback, overcorrect, get too deep in the woods, too myopic. So there's this balancing, if you will. So that's, that's why I like working in university settings. And I, I would get to the track at 8 or 9 a.m. and I'd still be there at 8 or 10 p.m. So I'd have periods with groups and I'd have periods with small groups and I'd have periods with one-on-ones or two-on-ones. And so I purposely juggled the formatting of the day just to keep my brain fresh, agile, fluid, but a lot of times we don't have that option. I mean, like right now in the NFL with the ridiculous startup thing, S&C staff's got 90 guys or 80 guys. You know, it changes every day. They don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So with, with the way your schedule now is lined up with, with your coaching and, and how you are with your athletes, what's your periodization looking like? How, how, right? So you, you may have a guy for a week or you may have a guy for a month or you may have a guy for six months. Like how, how are you, how are you doing this? Well, this will piss a lot of people off, but I think you got to start out studying the history of periodization. <clears throat> Matt Bev, Schmolensky, Hari, Bompa. And you, you can argue about, well, it's drug-influenced and all, but you got to know what's been attempted first. So I start there. When I was a young coach, I used to do an annual plan. And then I started realizing, well, one month into it, we're, we're off schedule. And so, okay, well, I'll put more emphasis on the cycles. Well, same thing. You know, halfway through a cycle, shit blew up. So then I was like, well, I'll really focus on the microcycle. Well, again, <laughs> how many times on day seven has it gone to plant? Let's be honest. So I was like, okay, it's important to have a blueprint, a framework. But I've evolved into prescriptive dynamics. But still, you got to have the blueprint. And that's the danger. If, if you throw away periodization, say it's dead, then you're just freelancing. Well, jazz players practice the scales every day. 
guys in the business 50 years still do scales. There's something to certain fundamentals and first principles that has value, in my opinion. So I have an annual plan and I have cycle plans. I have weekly plans. I even have daily plans. But that changes like in the NFL. Am I playing the first game of the day at 1 o'clock, the late afternoon game, or the evening game? So that changes even the daily flux of the plan. You know, I got NHL hockey guys fly from Miami to Vancouver to New York. These plans are con – but if you don't know the fundamentals and the principles, then you don't know how to morph things or adjust things. So if I get a player, a, a rehab player, I'm going to take them through a warm-up that I feel is appropriate for where they're at. That warm-up will determine what we segue to next. So if it's an acceleration screen and they can't accelerate, well, maybe we do it in adaptive gait, like dribbling. Or maybe we do it on the bike to keep biochemistry up. So our plan B is plan A. It's just we got to get creative. I'm not going to create a totally new plan B because we'll undertrain a lot of things. Our plan B is plan A. We just have to get creative. Hey, I got a bad shoulder. Olympic lifts are scheduled. Well, let's do one arm Olympic lifts. It's better than nothing. 70% cross ed. So the individualization is built on this framework of the annual plan, the mesocycle plan, the microcycle plan, the daily session. And the morphine is just based on where that athlete sits at that moment. And we develop a hierarchy. So what, what's the most important thing to work on first, second, and third? Those are also drivers and influencers. So like NBA guys, they don't train in the off-season, run hit intensity workouts or fart lakes or bike workouts. The first month they're playing golf. The second month they're back in the gym shooting. But yet when we test them on aerobic mitochondrial enzymes, they're off the chart. They train a lot of these things through the game. Mm -hmm. So how much redundancy do we need to do as performance specialists? You know, I think a lot of times we get so redundant, we're actually causing chaos or interference with our work. So I got a wide receiver. Uh, first day in camp last year, he ran 42 routes the first practice. And the bulk of these were long routes. <laughs> Does he really need more speed work that week? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you say that in regards to the NBA guys. I have, I've been training an NBA guy recently, and his coach had said to me, uh, six weeks before season started, they had, they had some workouts and the coach says, ah, he's a little out of shape. I said, no shit. He's, he doesn't, they don't start preseason for six weeks. He'll be in shape. Don't worry about it. He said, well, he needs to do suicides. I said, no, he doesn't. Why, why does he need to do suicides? So well, if you get four suicides and under this time with this much rest, like then he'll be basketball ready. I said, or he could just play a couple of halves of or a couple of quarters here and there of basketball, add them up to a couple of halves. I was like, when has this guy ever been out of shape in his 12-year career? I don't think he needs suicides now. But no one seems to understand this. Well, 
we've kind of lost the plot on this. So guys in my generation, we played every sport. So in the summer, you were playing baseball. In the fall, you played football. In the winter, you wrestled or played basketball. In the spring, you ran track. That's how it was. And I started noticing something that for two to three weeks, when I changed sports, I was out of shape for that sport. Mm-hmm. But then magically, about three weeks into the season, I was in shape without doing extra or different. It just took the specificity of biological demands was unique to the sport and the sport trained it. Now, should you train some of these things if you've got gaps or viruses or layoffs? You know, there may be a place, but I think we're too quick to remedy what we see immediately and not look at the total solution on some of these things. So how many times have we had a, a, a player surgery in the offseason? And pre-major surgery and a lot of plan B and plan C workouts while he's rehabbing, goes to the OTAs, adaptive, not really involved, goes to training camp, again, reduced reps, so on and so forth, preseason games, limited minutes. But then in the season, halfway through, he's having an all-pro season. It happens every year. The game trains a lot of qualities. Yeah. Yeah, I I see it with baseball players all the time as well. Guys don't get into baseball shape. Like, yeah, they're hitting the ball pretty hard, but I don't know. They they don't seem to really catch their stride until midseason when every other quality has diminished, when these guys are weak as hell, when they're – I mean, if we were to run 40s or run 60s or run 30s, they wouldn't be as fast, but yet they're playing better than they've ever played earlier in the season. Something has to be more important here. I, I think it shows you that the skill of baseball far outweighs the physiological factors of baseball. And that, you know, why, why is Brady so good at his age? It, it's not because he's physically better. It just he knows the game, you know. We'll go to Messi. I I work a lot in European soccer. And when Tech got into the Spanish League, all these, with GPS data and all this, you know, the coaches were pulling their hair out because Messi ran less than any player on the team, ran less distance, less number of times, at less speeds, yet he was player of the year. (laughs) It's because he knew the game. Yeah. A PhD in any sport. Yeah. So, you know, and this is a problem with tech. So I work with a really good running back, and the GPS data I struggle with because it's average, it's pretty ambiguous, it doesn't detect a lot of things. So say you're doing a goal line session in football. The GPS data is going to say your running back didn't run very far or very fast. But it's not going to tell you he did 10 million change in directions at high force, high velocity. That data doesn't show up. So that goal line session took more out of his biologics than if they were running a two-minute drill down the field. Mm. So in this chase to get myopic granularity with tech data, sometimes we just lose the overall plot, I think. 
And and going then back into just the, the realm of coaching itself, I mean, with technology or without, what do you what do you honestly think is the truth to it? I mean, as coaches, are you able to sort of really make that big of a difference to an athlete? I mean, of course, there's a lot of genetic potential that's there and they need to have the right experiences at the right times and luck and funding and all this other stuff. But how much can coaches actually really do? Well, I think you can nudge, you can simplify, you, you can help analyze. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer that coaches aren't going to be redone at any time really soon. And, and what's been interesting to me during this virus thing is I'm doing a lot of video coaching, but it's not like being there in per person. I don't see the body language. I, I can't quite hear the tone of voice. I can't see the distractions. I can't feel the weather, mm -hmm. how the wind's changing and so on and so forth. You know, and a lot of friends in my neighborhood are doing uh, remote gym workouts. And, and the number one complaint is they've lost the social factor of it. Mm -hmm. So just like genetics are important, but so is nurture. Mm -hmm. So environment is, is, is a big player here. So I personally think that, you know, it's a balancing of environment and constructs, you know, data is important, but a lot of times data for me is kind of like a blood test. It's going to point out the obvious, but if I do that blood test at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m., I'm going to get different readouts because mm -hmm. it's a snapshot of that moment. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the red flags are important but you probably knew those red flags before you got that information. Or a lot of times it's just comforting and confirming that, hey, my intuition is kind of showing up on a data trend here. Or maybe the data allows you to have better conversations with the team doc or the physio or the therapist or the ATC or the player itself. You can use it as an educational platform. Because today's generation likes numbers because all the gaming and stuff. So if you argue or teach or debrief with numbers, a lot of times it's a quicker segue into having the right conversation. So like, like what, what, one of our big rock principles we talked about earlier in accelerating or starting is each stride gets longer, each stride gets quicker in a harmonic pattern. Well, if you have data like a MySprint app and you show this guy his stride length isn't changing for four or five steps in a row, that, that's very valuable data. He may not be able to feel that. He may not even be able to see it on film. His eye's not educated. But if the data said, dude, you just took four steps in a row and they were all 1 meter 85, 86, you're not changing stride length. So you're not pushing into the ground effectively. Or you may see a lot of steps in a certain, and you say, look, you're, you're overcooking frequency and you're undercooking stride length. So there's ways to take that myopic data and use it as a teaching platform. Mm -hmm. what, what do you, what, what have you used from a data measurement standpoint for stride length, stride frequency, uh, horizontal force output or even vertical force output 
What, what have you utilized? What tools have been useful for you to, to gather data and to, to actually observe stuff? Well, I, I grew up in an era where uh, <clears throat> video access wasn't readily available. We had Super 8 movie cameras with a cartridge and then you took it to the drugstore to get developed and you waited seven days. And by the time you got it back, the mistake you thought you were working on had totally gone or gotten worse. And then I had a hand crank projector with a fan blowing on it so the film wouldn't melt. So I'd stop a frame, go up on the wall, trace the pattern with a protractor, measure the angles with a slide rule, figure out. So it was a little more cumbersome back then. Now on an iPhone, you can put a MySprint app and, and get all this information like punch. <laughs> so again, I use it primarily for two reasons. Uh, educational, you know, to enhance conversations with parties and confirmation, or sometimes it's a wake up call. Like, wow, I didn't notice that. So what's, what's your, what equipment are you using now for that type of stuff? Are you using, are you using the just basic, uh, drawing, drawing basic lines with, with your iPhone? I mean, I, there's, there's tons of easy yeah. ways to do it. Well, it, it depends on the athlete, the time of the year, the virus we're addressing. So sometimes kinograms, you know, our five landmark positions, touchdown, mid stance, toe off, in flight, pre-strike. We, we can point out obvious violations or where they're outside their normal bandwidth. So lower leg swing out. Well, if one leg's swinging out 30 degrees and the other 10 degrees, that's an asymmetry error that we don't want to see. We know that's going to end up with bicep femoris issues if we don't address that. Now, the tough question is why is that happening? There could be a variety of reasons there. So the first layer is looking at these landmark positions. The second layer is looking at movement expressions. So we've all had the butt kickers versus the front side guys. Well, those create unique problems and energy leaks and injury risk. So looking at the movement expression would be a second layer. Then the third layer with more granularity might be looking at the specifics. So what are the angles? of the various joints and limbs and appendages. What, what are the, the, the kinematic timing features? Like how long is the contact time? How long is the flight time? So again, as we talked earlier, we build layers. So with a novice, do I need to get to third or fourth layer information? No, I'm teaching these landmark positions. For a high schooler that's pretty advanced, now I'm talking landmark positions, but also movement pathways. Now, an NFL guy, yeah, I'm talking third layer stuff. Hey, on this change in direction to your right, you're on the ground X milliseconds, but to the left, you're on the ground Y milliseconds. If guys are smart, they're going to pick up on that on film, and they're going to overplay you to the right. So, so you, you remember in basketball, you get the scouting report and it say this guy can't dribble with his left hand. So what did you do? You overplayed him. Yeah. 
so, so to measure these things, are you just, are you just saying this is what I'm seeing or are you actually quantifying these things with specific metrics? Yeah. It it depends on scale, scope, time, and so on and so forth. So if I'm doing a direct feedback, like a Zoom coaching session, I may draw a few key lines and say, look, on this jump, you were here. On the last jump, you were here, here, and here. So this is telling me that maybe we ought to focus on this or emphasize this because you violated some of these first level things. Mm -hmm. Now for the third layer stuff, that's going to be the debrief the next day because I got to measure it. I got some algorithms that I'll run it through. I'll create a spreadsheet for them. But that's, that's an Olympic level jumper, for example. If I'm coaching a high school jumper, I'm just going to do some pictograms, send them mm-hmm. over, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. So it's, it's that, uh, that old adage, do you know your audience? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, to, to bring it back, we were, we were talking about getting in shape for a specific sport or, you know, it, it's just the specific work capacity associated with it. I saw a lecture you gave on mental, mental training or mental toughness. Um, I, I have, I've worked for tons of coaches over the years. And one, one, constant that, one constant theme that a lot of coaches want to push is the mental toughness. Now, I, I try to explain to them the stress resilience component in, in mental toughness and how essentially fatigue will just make cowards out of everyone, no matter how tough they are, regardless of experience in it or not. If you're just tired, you're just going to quit. How, how, how would you expand upon that? Oh, this is a little bit of a rant and pet peeve uh, topic. So I like to be devil's advocate sometimes. Have you ever had a guy make a bad decision or choke on the first offensive series of the game? He wasn't tired. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a team beat before they stepped on the field? Yeah. They weren't tired. So I do a lot of work with special forces, and I've studied mental resilience, mental skills for probably two decades. There's cognitive behavior therapy characteristics that have to be addressed and work capacity or being fit is one of those, but it's not the only. Mm -hmm. So in an Olympic 100 meter final, uh, yeah, they've run three rounds, so there might be a fatigue equation, but they're relatively rested. Well, only three people made great decisions. The rest of the field made mistakes, mental mistakes. And it wasn't in a fatigue activity, so to speak. So I'm of the operational design that, you know, you do, do surveys, you do analysis, you do interviews, you do debriefs. And you look for things that truly cause mental failure. 
It could be iceberg beliefs, so beliefs that lurk below the surface, like <clears throat> I never play good in the rain, or I run slow into headwinds, or I didn't have cornflakes, so it's going to be a bad day, <clears throat> or uh, Tommy was my roommate. He stayed awake all night, you know, the iceberg things, you know, that there are certain qualities. If we look at elite special forces, that they exhibit like optimism, compassion, empathy, fluidity, contingency excellence. A lot of times people fail because they're not good at contingencies. Like I grew up in Ohio, a football coach, small team, undersized, and we had trouble getting teams to play us because we were so bad and we were so far away from anybody, nobody wanted to schedule us. So we were a 1A school. We were playing 3A schools. They'd come out with 100 guys. We'd come out with 30. And, you know, we would scout and say, well, they're going to do this. Well, we were so bad, they didn't even do that. So we had to, <laughs> we had to be contingency geniuses. You know, my, my offensive center was 150 pounds. So he wasn't going to drive block a nose guard. So I could call him weak because – I'd say, you got to drive block this 250-pounder, and you weigh 150 pounds. And after five failed attempts, I'd say, well, you're just not tough enough. No, it's physics. <laughs> now, if I told him to fire out, scramble block, and grab his socks, he could do that. <laughs> it wasn't mental toughness. So I, I think it's... I think too many people are watching military movies or special forces training and think the reason they're good is because they can endure fatigue. Enduring fatigue is just a component. And through your research, Dan, what are the other key components to sort of optimal psychological performance? Oh, there, there's a lot of variables, but if you look at the, some of the research that came out by uh, the group at the University of Pennsylvania, Selig and, and people like that, you know, they had all kinds of questionnaires and follow-ups and following people in the field and doing debriefs after missions and so on and so forth. And some things that really stood out for me that were kind of shocking was these guys scored high in empathy. And I was like, you know, they weren't lone wolves. If you're a lone wolf, you couldn't operate in a 10-man squad. So a lot of these myths we have about special forces guys aren't, in fact, true. They all had a strong faith walk. That may be faith religious-wise. It could be faith in their country. It could be faith in their squad. could be faith in their family. But they had a strong faith emphasis that they, they were good at contingencies. They, they, they were fluid. They were optimists. You know, there are certain characteristics that, that keep showing up on, on these successful groups. And, and due to you, you know, most of the time being your own lone wolf within the coaching staff, and you have to deal with, as you know, so much to do with therapy and, you know, a lot of uh, just talking with these guys in general and understanding them and their lives. What are some of the techniques that you've picked up and used? I, mean, I know you mentioned CBT uh, principles earlier on. Is this things that you've sort of trained yourself in and you're using like theoretical frameworks or are you just 
you know, kind uh, of freestyling with it? No, I, there's definitely design plans and you know i rely on a network i I know when it's out of my scale and scope when i need to refer out and ask for help or intervention you know it could be clerical intervention it could be cbt counseling uh it could be a come to jesus meeting with the athlete and their family and their agent and their sponsor there's layers to this i look at it like i got to be a philadelphia lawyer i've got to present a case to win the jury. So I'm constantly looking at it as like, how can I get all parties to the table that are pertinent? Can I identify a gatekeeper that directs the operation? Can I define action points and action plans? And how do I follow up with the gatekeeper that there's enforcement to these action plans? How many times have we been in a meeting and six weeks later, we're in the same meeting? Well, that's a failure of the gatekeeper because you left the meeting with action points and action plans, but no one enforced them or held people accountable or followed up on them. So if you don't have a gatekeeper who is good at enforcing operational action plans, these plans fail. So what is your method do you go is is your as as the coach you're you're hoping that you have some influence as being the gatekeeper right but when you're not what are you doing to influence that person and I, that's i mean especially when you're dealing with these these high profile people and dealing with their teams and their organizations and like all these people this person handles this and this person handles the nutrition how exactly do you navigate yourself within that framework? Well, I think the first step is establish lines of communication, you know, develop relationships, uh, develop trust, or at least respect. You know, design scenarios where you have formal debriefs or at least constructive debriefs where and promote horizontalness. Like when everybody sits down, they put their rank and their nameplate on the wall. Everybody has input. So a common scenario like in the NFL is I've got a player, I've got a spouse, I've got his agent, I got his head coach, I've got his GM, I've got a position coach, I got his off-season guru coach. Yeah, I've got a lot of balls. I've got his ATC trainer who's retired on the job. I've got a team doc that believes in this. I've got a lot of players who don't want to play team ball, right? And this, you know, you're in the business. This is normal operating procedure. So I'll send out studies or research or video or radiology reports or images or whatever trying to build awareness of the problem, first of all, that can we agree there's an issue? Because if you can't agree there's an issue, then you got to debrief, go back to work, and how do I build this case that everyone involved agrees there's an issue? So first step, there is a problem. <laughs> all right, then I give them historicals. 
perspective. Okay, here's what's been attempted with individuals with this problem. And there's a trend for these people to turn it around. And this group is all over the shop and this group failed miserably. So we can throw away those strategies for the group that failed miserably consistently. Maybe we look at a few of these strategies that are up and down, but we probably ought to look a little more at the strategies that are showing a trend of working. So again, kind of like our earlier talk about where are we at on the spectrum and what are the layers to the problem, you know, building that. But it's, it's about communication, trust, respect, and, and, and value, and, and identifying the problem. A lot of times, we don't identify the real source of the error. So like your basketball example, the, the guy looked unfit. Based on what? How do we define unfit? Well, I went through the error with team sport groups where we did the Cooper's test. Well, how'd that shit work out? <laughs> and now, you know, the rage is tempo runs. Well, how's that working out? Injury numbers are through the roof. Mm -hmm. because we haven't really identified the essentials of the problem. We're dancing around nebulous possible causation. So this is, and this is a constant struggle that I have with, with communication. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier for, for a guy like you that's, hey, there, you, to, to a lot of people, you are the be all end all. You know what I mean? Like, and I know you're going to shake your head. No, like, shut up. I get it. But coach, you're, you're our, you're our go-to for our guys. You know what I mean? So if you don't have the answer, there's going to be a lot of people saying, well, shit, I, I don't know how to find the answer. Right? So everyone knows that in a situation like you, the buck stops here with a guy like me, or a younger, a younger coach, how are we supposed to navigate through all this? Well, that, that's where building your network is critical. So if, if I've got a team doctor, for example, that's a barrier, an obstacle, I've got leading sport team doctors all over the world, and I'm gonna send this guy four or five articles by the leading guys of what they're doing, how they look at it, I may, I'm going to do homework. I'm like a, a Gestapo kind of spy. I'm going, to, I'm going to find out everything about this guy that's causing me headaches. And I'm going to find out, hey, he went to a conference where Dr. So-and-so spoke. And I'm going to say, hey, have you ever heard of this guy? Yeah, he's great. I heard a lecture. It's great. So I'm going to call Dr. So-and-so and say, hey, can you call Ed and talk to him? Because this guy's bringing out to lunch. So it's like trying to figure out who are their peer influencers to slowly shift the conversation or the paradigm. I like that. That's really so, good. Like I, I do it all the time with the NFL guys. I get these hot shot rookies with a nightmare agent and his posse is a group of enablers and whatnot. But, you know, I've been in the league a long time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have two or three old dogs, veterans, all pro guys, guys in the Hall of Fame. So, like, can you call Ed and have the talk? And if one doesn't do it, I might have three. I might have 
a guy that was a rebel, a guy that was the team guy, a guy that was uh, kind of unknown. I'm going to have all three, and then I'm going to call Ed and say, look, was there any common themes to these three cats? Yeah, they all did X, Y, and Z. Well, maybe you ought to do X, Y, and Z then. Dan, you know, the thing that I've always really appreciated from you, from watching all of your your stuff that I could find online is you're so all in with your coaching. I mean, I get the sense that you're doing this, even when you're asleep, you're thinking about how to get people better. Yeah. What, what, why do you coach? I think <clears throat> one, I've always been infatuated with physical culture. So mm. dance, modern dance, ballet, jazz, gymnastics, Cirque du Soleil, Anything that has movement, movement excellence, I'm, I'm intrigued by. So I've always had a huge affinity for what Europeans call physical culture. Obviously, I love the puzzle. I love puzzles. I love networking and building teams <clears throat> to find solutions. I love that moment when the light bulb goes on on that kid or that therapist or that team doctor when they have that aha moment. You can't go to Walmart and buy that feeling. I get letters at Christmas, coach, <clears throat> I didn't know what you meant. I fought you on this forever. But now that I'm a parent with a kid in the sport, you are absolutely <laughs> right. <clears throat> and I get it 25 years later. <laughs> So sometimes the aha moment is delayed. There's an incubation period for, for awareness. But those moments, those feelings, those experiences, the, the journey, if you will, is so rewarding. Sport has given me more than I've ever given it, the chance to travel and meet people and talk and share and, and touch lives. I'm, I'm a spiritually based guy. And, and you know, I think we're truly our brother's keepers. And this was my gift is how to touch people, influence people, connect people, you know, to show love. That's great. And, and what's been some of the, the key like landmark memories that you've got or journeys that you wouldn't mind sharing? Well, at age 66, <laughs> you know, the brain starts to fog and, and you're always going to piss off people and say, hey, I wasn't in your top five memories. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that, that, that's a bit, <clears throat> bit of a landmine uh, scenario for me. You know, everybody's saying, well, write the book. And, you know, I was like, well, I'll either get sued or people will be upset because <laughs> I didn't get chapter. Okay, so then maybe a, a bit of an easy one. What's been one of the more challenging situations that's got a good story behind it in terms of like the journey that you went through with the, with the athlete? Well, a, a common one, one of the kids uh, that probably identified as their coach would be Greg Rutherford, the British long jumper, who oh, yeah. won the Olympics and world champs and European champs, so on and so forth. Greg was a very unique individual. He's very injury prone. He's very illness prone. Uh, lifestyle management was a disaster. He, he, he was a train wreck. At age 23, when I inherited him, we did a medical history survey and he'd had something like 17 hamstring tears on one leg, five on the other, uh, three or four foot surgeries, hernia surgeries, 
He was sick all the time. He was averaging three comps a year. So he'd do a comp, get injured, come back, do a comp, get injured. He, he was a train wreck. And, and in a nine-year career, with a lot of help, a big network, and, and Greg being a tremendous student of, of the game, so to speak, you know, he was able to have quite a career and, and quite a legacy. And, and I highlight him because <clears throat> how he trained was different than anybody I ever trained. Uh, he, he could train about three days a week. If we tried any more than that, he would blow up. Uh, he could lift weights about once every two weeks. If we tried any more than that, he would blow up. Um, and that's radically different from what a lot of people think. So he, he was kind of a, a guinea pig for a lot of ideas that I had on programming and density patterns and whatnot um, that at the end of the day kind of were proven to be correct. And so that, that was an interesting journey because he challenged conventional medical wisdom. He challenged uh, conventional programming wisdom. He challenged uh, conventional co-athlete relationship. We built a team of experts around him that challenged convention. The UK was very hierarchical and siloed, and we built this horizontal group around him. We were kind of against the norm on almost everything we did, and yet it came to fruition, if you will. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I've heard you say this multiple times. You're a million-mile traveler on three different airlines, and I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure it's probably more than that now. You're a sweetheart of a guy. You're a dedicated coach. How exactly do you have a family? Well, that's, <clears throat> that's my big virus. You know, I, we always talk about work-life balance, and, you know, I think it's a nice idea. It might be a blueprint, <clears throat> but if you're really passionate about anything, whether it's business or coaching or art or whatnot, there's going to be periods where you're all in, you're totally consumed, you're, you've got blinders on. And then you got to schedule periods where you remove yourself from that. As a young coach, I was terrible. Uh -huh. And I, I think there's stages of life and coaching, there's stages. So when you're an athlete, it's all about output, outcome, notoriety, reward so on and so forth then you realize you can't do it anymore and you get into coaching <laughs> so in your 20s it's about building a resume you know working jobs getting diplomas certificates internships build, starting to build your network <clears throat> you know in your 30s you start sifting things down and developing these spectrums and layers and trend analysis but you're still pushing hard then in your 40s, you start realizing there's more to life than what you're doing. And so you start shifting a little bit of this work-life balance. And then in your 50s, <clears throat> you probably narrow into some things that you determine to be critical. And so you develop a better hierarchical system on what you do, when you do it, how often you do it. And then in your 60s and 70s, you're the elderly sage. You can sit back and pontificate 
and give examples where you totally screwed it up. So when I was in my 20s, my relationship with athletes, I was kind of like the older brother. And then in my 30s, I was kind of like the crazy uncle. And then in my 40s, I was like the young dad. And then in my 50s, I was kind of like the elderly dad. And now in my 60s, I'm like the fuzzy, huggy, teddy bear grandpa. <laughs> so I, I think you go through these stages of life. Um, I don't operate in regrets because, um, you know, do I have some? Do I wish I'd done some things differently? Sure, but... I wouldn't be where I was today without all these failures and mistakes. And some of them have been very painful. And there's relationships in my family with my son, my daughter, my wife, my grandchildren, that they, they were shortchanged. You know, I wasn't there for them at the right time, at the right moment, maybe at the right depth. But I tried to balance that, you know, with good moments, good time. And it's a journey. It's a process. I think I'm a lot better grandfather than I was father. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm a slow learner. It takes me a, a, a lot of bruised elbows and scarred foreheads before I, I can smell the coffee. And hopefully at age 66, I'm, uh, I'm seeing the picture a little more clearly. So, so how much are you working now then? Well, it's, I thought with the virus and my lockdown due to health problems that it, it would really slow down, but I'm busier than ever because, <laughs> you know, I'm dealing with a lot of athletes doing return to play work and they have no access to physios or therapists or ATC. So I'm having to invent stuff. Teams are constantly like in the NFL, we've changed the training plan about 80 times. Yeah. Cause even today it's changing. Uh, same with Some, they're not back, and I got so it's just chaos. So I'm working 12, 14 hour days. Unfortunately, I'm not getting paid on a lot of these things because funds are frozen and people don't know if they're going to have funds. So I'm doing a lot of pro bono work or work to keep relationships alive with hopes of maybe one day getting paid. Oh, man. So, Dan, I know you mentioned it before we started recording, but how many sort of people are you working with right now? Well, direct coaching, <clears throat> I'm influencing 80 track and field athletes directly. Uh, two or three guys in every league, like MLB, um, NHL, what have you. So those are folks that I see daily. <laughs> so video of certain selected menu items in their workout or their warm-up or their therapy session. Uh, <clears throat> Zoom cast while they're working with their therapist. Uh, Zoom cast while they're doing certain return to play activity. Uh, formal debriefs every week. Uh, daily debriefs that are informal, maybe text. So that, that, that's that layer. Then there's probably 30 or 40 athletes who I help their coach. So I get called in when shit hits the man or they hit a big blind spot. And then I mentor a lot of therapists and return to play specialists. And then I consult with a lot of uh, federations and Olympic committees. So like some countries are having to decide what sports are we going to emphasize and which ones are we going to de-emphasize because we can see the economies crashed. 
Like sport as we know it, guys, is done. The university outlook is going to change. Mom and pop gyms are changing. High school sports are changing. It, it, it's an existential sh shifting that's going on here. And so a lot of my work is trying to forecast, is like predicting the weather, you know, what sport's going to look like in six months or a year from now. You know, I've got Olympic athletes that are on shoe contracts that expire in August because that's when the games were going to be over. And they've been told they're not going to be renewed for next year's Olympics because the companies don't know what the landscape are. So I've got top 10 world-ranked athletes with no financial support after August. That's a unique puzzle. Oh, yeah. Enough to keep you stimulated, though, my friend, huh? Oh, it's seldom a boring day here. And what, <laughs> what's some of the, in terms of all the other things that you've learned throughout your career, what's some of the things that you, you find yourself still very passionate about learning more of? Is there any sort of new fields or? Well, I mean, I, I'm intrigued by tech and what tech can give us. Like, I, I'm working with a project with sensors and shoes with an, a, a guy out of Australia. Um, so looking at foot dynamics, you know, change in direction running, because, you know, we all know that shoe problems and surface problems are epidemic in the sport leagues. <clears throat> and we're really guessing what's going on in the foot. So these sensor mechanisms are really intriguing to me. And the use of accelerometers, like we talk about player load in rugby and NFL, but because of player agreements and so on and so forth, we don't have data on collisions. Mm -hmm. That's a load factor. If I'm a D lineman banging for two hours, it may look like I didn't run anywhere, but I got pounded. So I'm kind of, from the tech side of thing, I'm kind of into sensory mechanisms and feedback loops. Physiologically, I'm, I'm into fluid dynamics and fashion, how that affects movement strategy and movement operations. And, um, you know, ongoing thing is epidemiological study of injuries, you know, just like when do they occur, how do they occur, you know, all the different layers and patterns to injuries, you know, can we narrow down? I don't think you can prevent injuries, but I think you can mitigate risk. So that's a big interest right now. Wonderful. Coach, we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Do you have, and, and I ask you all the time, is there anything that you're selling that, that I can put out there or anything that, that you want out there that we can, we can help raise some money for something somewhere that you want to, that you want to talk about? No, one of my problems is I'm not a good businessman. I, I, I grew up as an educator and teachers teach basically for free. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to enter the commercial realm of things. It, it just, it's conflict. You know, Coach Telez was a big influencer. You know, all those years, all those people, you know, he, he got paid and, you know, whatnot, but not like he should have. Because teachers generally are not good business people. It's not even our paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, I'll say this. The work that we do at Altus, I think, is very valuable. You know, our, our mantra there is we're about the application end of things rather than just the knowledge end of things. 
So if people can support the work that that group at Altus is doing, I think that, that would be a big plus for coaching. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Dan. It was really a pleasure to meet you, mate. And uh, thanks for the, the influence you've had on, you know, my coaching and for all of the people that hopefully I've managed to be a small, small help to. So, and I look forward to hopefully speaking again at some point. Yeah, we'll do it again. This was fun. Thank you so much, coach. And, and stay on the line uh, before I exit out.